Well, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Unplugged. I'm your host, Jacob Puckett. And if you followed along with our podcast the last couple of months, you know we have been highlighting Hurricane Hugo and the anniversary of Hurricane Hugo. As many in this area talk about all kinds of stories they remember from that storm and from that event. And I thought, what a better way to put a bow, so to speak, on this series and have CEO Doug Johnson himself here in the booth with us to talk about Hurricane Hugo and his experiences. Doug, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jacob. Thank you for having me here. Well, thank you for joining us. And Doug, I guess I want to start out, you mentioned this to me when we were discussing this episode. You you were kind of new to your role at the time, and I can't think of what a, a crazier way to go into your role than to have one of the most historic storms to hit Western North Carolina at that time, right at the beginning. Yeah, so in 1989, in June of 1989, uh, our then CEO, Wayne Keller, left to become the interim CEO down in Raleigh at our state organization. And the board asked me to step in and, and become the interim CEO of Blue Ridge. And that happened in June of 1989, and Hugo hit us in September, actually September 22nd, I'll never forget. Uh, so yeah, I was brand new, interim. Uh, we were a bit surprised that Hugo came northwest on the direction that it did. So we, like a lot of folks in our area, were a little bit flat-footed. We didn't see it coming. All the predictions were that that storm was going to go east, and uh, it didn't. What was, you know, you're talking about being flat-footed in that scenario, and that being, I think that's the case for a lot of folks in western North Carolina. I don't think that's unique to just us. I think everybody was caught off guard from that storm, from what I've heard through the years. So, what was the moment for you personally where you said, uh-oh, okay, this is a little bit different than what we normally do. If this isn't your average storm. Yeah, so it's interesting. When I went to bed the night before, I called my sister who lived in eastern North Carolina and said, we're going to be praying for you. This is a huge, bad storm that's going to come right over you. Little did I know when I got up the next morning that it had changed direction and was headed directly uh, for our service area uh, coming across Charlotte. 200 miles inward uh, off the ocean and still with tropical force winds when it hit the mountains with east wall rotation. We'd always been told, Jacob, that hurricanes don't come to the mountains. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in the mountains, and that's something we'd always, you know, when it hits the mountain face, it'll just separate. And, you know, we'll get rain out of it, but we won't see hurricane-type winds or tropical force winds. But uh, Hurricane Hugo changed all that. That was when I first saw that and saw that it was hitting the mountain. I didn't have a true perspective of how bad it was going to be, but it was really, uh, oh goodness, this thing is going into the mountains with 60, 70 mile an hour winds with rotation. And sure enough, if you looked at the face of the mountain and across the mountains, it you could tell it looked like the twisting of the trees and just taking down large trees. Uh, it was a tremendous force and a huge storm that hit us. You know, as a young CEO at the time versus, you know, now, have you experienced more storms in your career? How would you say your perception of preparedness has changed? What about that storm changed that moment for you or that mindset going forward, really? Yeah, I think just a lot of things came out of that experience for us. And certainly for me, being new in the job and just beginning to take the leadership role. And then, of course, I did become the full-time regular CEO in January of 1990. So we began thinking about what did we learn here? And there were, there were a whole list of things that we learned. One was that our right-of-way was not in the shape it should be. 
and that we needed to invest more dollars in tree trimming and and getting trees away from our right of way. It wouldn't have prevented this outage, but it would have certainly reduced uh, the impact of it, particularly on our larger lines, our transmission lines and our feeder lines out into communities that go to substations. Uh, so we placed a big emphasis on that, but you can't do it all, you know, in one year. It took literally years of investing to get to where we are today with the kind of right-of-ways that we have today. But, you know, we learned a lot of other things, just operational preparedness, um, emergency response planning. Um, you know, when all the power went down, we didn't have hotels and restaurants available uh, in all counties to house all the line workers and all the tree right-of-way crews. We had almost 400 people working on our system to get the power back on for uh, upwards of 10 days. It actually went on for about 14 uh, days, but you know, housing that many people, feeding them three meals a day when we had not really prepared for it. We, you know, we, we didn't think Hugo was going to come across our area. So we were scrapping literally to get people in here. Uh, our own corporate office was without power. Uh, I remember walking in, Jacob, to our dispatch area uh, where all the crew dispatching occurred at that time, and they were working by candles. Wow. And you know, that said, okay, Doug, number one item for next year's budget is generators. You know, so we, we did. We put in backup generators so that we wouldn't be, uh, you know, just uh, hampered so much by not having power because it took the line down that served our corporate office and it was buried under trees. And that, that line, you know, was, had always been maintained to a very high standard, but it's still trees outside the right of way took it down. And that, that made a real impression, you know, upon me, just being prepared. Uh, we've really increased our watching of weather events. Of course, for, weather forecasting has improved greatly Definitely. since 1989. Uh, we have much better forecast today, but we, you know, we monitor weather 24/7, and we're constantly preparing. Uh, we over-prepare now. If if we think we might see an ice storm, snowstorm, windstorm, or an event like a Hugo coming our way, you know, we're already staging crews. We're bringing people in. Our our rule now is even if we spent some money and didn't need to because the storm turned and went another direction, uh, we would be ready. And so being prepared became really a part. Of, of our whole operational thinking. And, and talking about the operational thinking side of it, something that uh, you and I had talked about kind of briefly that I thought was really interesting, that I thought members would find interesting too, is you, you had mentioned that the mindset of how and where you place poles and wire had kind of shifted after that point and after that storm, and it made you actually rethink uh, from an operational standpoint where we put our infrastructure at, right? Yes. And if you go back to the early days when the cooperative was started back in the late 30s and early 40s, uh, you know, we were a small fledgling organization, did not have a lot of money. We were borrowing everything we did from the, at uh, that time, the REA, Rural Electrification Authority, now it's RUS, and uh, they had rules, and their, their rules were you build the shortest possible distance as the crow flies. So we were going across all of our mountains and hills and valleys, you know, not out by the road. So we, you know, made an emphasis to begin moving some of those lines out of those heavily wooded, tough terrain areas that we couldn't get vehicles to, that we had to go in and hand climb everything or drag poles in, you know, that just difficult work. So we moved a lot out of our main lines out to the roadways now. And uh, that's improved our efficiency uh, very significantly. 
And, you know, a, a big angle of any storm, we spoke with Robert Kent, uh, Mike Kincaid, and Jeff Benfield in the first two parts of this series. And, you know, that from an operational standpoint, from a line technician standpoint, anytime you're in a storm of this magnitude, there's certainly a huge task ahead of you. But I wanted to ask you from your perspective, what is it like to lead people, lead an organization during a crisis like that when it seems like everything that could go wrong is going wrong. Yeah, it, it's it's a huge responsibility because you have to make sure that you keep perspective on the overall picture. How how is everything coming together? And literally in in 1989, I can remember my vice president of engineering literally going out in the field to help determine how bad the damage was. So you have executives literally out in pickup trucks trying to determine, you know, what we do next and where the problems are. And so you've got to have someone, and that was me, kind of watching out over the whole operation from logistics to safety to, you know, overall how well we're feeding people, taking care of people. And I had a lot of folks helping do that. I wasn't personally doing everything, but I was keeping an eye on everything. Mm. And so when you get hit like that, it takes all everybody on board, all hands on board in order to respond to it. Talking about that, I think that sheds light on part of the scene that members may not normally see. There's a whole other picture that's going on during a storm behind the scenes that members uh, may not be involved with. Do you want to touch on that real quick with uh, just what goes on behind the scenes that they're not seeing? I know they see uh, line technicians show up in trucks and they're seeing people out and about, you know, either bird dogging, you know, looking at the lines or right. repairing those lines. But there's actually a whole different realm to it that they may not see behind those doors. Yeah. And I, like one of the things is just getting the manpower here. Uh, I know when Hugo hit, I can remember our director of operations, who's now deceased, Bobby Joe Moretz, came into my office and said, Doug, we're in trouble. He said, I can't get any linemen or right-of-way crews here. Could you call some of your friends in Tennessee or Georgia or Alabama and see if we can get some crews from there? Because all the crews have been used in North Carolina and South Carolina. The investor owns had pulled all the contractors. The damage was huge. And so I began doing that and just calling friends that I had met and said, can you help us out? Can you send crews? And they began working in their states and they were able to amass a large number of line workers and right-of-way workers from uh, states that are west of us uh, to get here to us. But it took two or three days for that to occur, for them to be called, for them to organize, for them to do a convoy in here to get them set up. And so that, that made us a little bit slower out of the gate, plus the devastation was just unbelievable. The number of trees that were down, the poles that were broken, virtually no meters turning. And then as we went on into, uh, you know, after a week, people were really getting angry. Our members were upset. We had people coming to our office angry. Uh, people were calling me and they wouldn't accept not to talk to me. They wanted to speak to me. So I was, you know, having to, to talk to people and which I don't mind doing is just one of me though. And a lot of folks were upset. Uh, people had just put their gardens in their freezers. Uh, farmers that do, did tobacco back in those days were just putting their tobacco in the barns to dry. And people were just having, you know, they were really, really upset that it was taking as long as it did. And kind of how we talked about this at the beginning of the episode and something I kind of want to re-highlight again. Were there any big pillar lessons, I guess, you learned from Hugo that kind of informed strategy and planning going forward? And kind of bouncing off of that, 
How is preparation different then versus now? Is it a completely different process now than how we used to do it? Yeah, it really is. Uh, we we do annual emergency response plans, and we we actually stage all kind of different disasters from weather to cyber to all kind. We know we have practice sessions where our key employees actually meet and and respond to. Uh, you know, something that a scenario that we, you know, did. In fact, we just did it this week. And uh, so, yeah, we're much more prepared. We're much more resilient. Our system is much, you know, we've moved a lot of lines to the road. We've strengthened the lines. You know, we our right-of-way program, our, our normal outage times are a third of what they were in 1989, just on a normal basis. So we've done a significant amount of work with, with right-of-way management, uh, equipment and technology. We can do a lot of uh, monitoring and controlling of the electric system, uh, you know, from the corporate office with our system operators. So, yeah, we're in a far, far different place today, but still, if weather decides to come in and bring a bad ice storm or, you know, a hurricane decides to visit our area again, you're still, you know, you have to be prepared. And I, I think we're better prepared to, to respond to those kinds of emergencies than, than we were you know, over 30 years ago. So, Doug, something that we talked about in the first two parts of this series was the cooperative spirit. Members coming together and uh, employees coming together and really how in any time of crisis, the unique part of being at a cooperative is that everybody will rally together, support each other and be a team. Is that something you found that from your perspective in this situation as well? And, and what could you speak on for the uh, cooperative spirit and really rallying together through a crisis? Yeah, it's huge. Um, we've always said after a a major emergency response. Our cultural uh, average goes up. Employees are there's more camaraderie. They've they've tackled a giant problem and they've solved it. And you know, it's seeing the lights come back on is really something that's important to us because we we have members, and members are just bigger in our minds than just a customer is. And so we care, and we don't want our members in the dark, and we don't want them having not to have hot water and heat and you know, their food to spoil. And so we take it very, very personally. And, you know, we take it as a part of who we are that we've made their life better if we get the lights back on. And that's that's a big part of our culture. So, yeah, it's, it's huge. Well, I would be amiss if we got to this part of the podcast and I didn't mention a couple of things to keep in mind as we head into the time of year where there are more storms and more winter storms, maybe not hurricanes, but definitely snow, ice and wind. If you go to blueridgeenergy.com forward slash storm, you can find our storm room resources page where we have pretty much all the information you'll need ahead of any storm, uh, whether that's generator safety, safety tips in general. Um, There's also all the resources you would need to create an emergency kit. And I would also encourage you to, anytime there's a storm, follow us on social media now so you can keep track of updates. Uh, We're always pushing out updates, constantly pushing out information to our members during a storm to keep you informed, keep you updated, and keep you abreast of anything that's going on with our line technicians and uh, restoring power efforts. So be sure to follow us on social media uh, and make sure you keep an eye on the website and our outage page anytime there's a storm, but we'll always be pushing out those resources. We want to be able to make sure that we can reach you in the easiest way possible. So head to blueridgeenergy.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 